You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. I invite you to return to Genesis. We're going to pick up where we left off last time three weeks ago to Genesis 46, starting with verse 8. And we'll read through verse 27. Genesis 46, beginning with verse 8 through verse 27. Genesis 46, verse 8. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi. The sons of Simeon, Jamuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jochen, Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Job, Shimron. And the sons of Zebulun, Sered, Elon, Jaliel, these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob and Paden Aram, together with his daughter Dinah. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphian, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Arai, Aradai, and Aralai. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, sixteen persons. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Mopim, Upim, and Ard. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Hushim, the sons of Naphtali, Jaziel, Gunai, Jezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah whom Laban gave to Rachel his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons, wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All of the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we look to you this morning, and we pray, Father, that you would be pleased to bless us as we look to your word, O Father, and as we look to you, O Father, ultimately, you are our teacher. You are our guide. I pray, Father, you will fill every heart that's gathered here this morning with your Holy Spirit and teach us, O oh Father. Teach us collectively. Teach us together, O oh Father. Instruct us in that which you purpose for us to learn through this passage of Scripture. Oh Father, we look to you with great anticipation of hearing your voice. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. 
Genealogies. Gotta love them, right? Gotta love them. What do we do with them? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, you're reading through, especially the Old Testament, and some of the the passages of the Old Testament, the storylines are gripping. I mean, they, they're absolutely gripping, and you're, you're engulfed with the storyline, and, you, you know, you come to this list of names, and the next thing you know, you're thinking about your grocery list. <laughs> or you're thinking about mowing the grass. You're thinking about, it, it's really hard to read these names, isn't it? And your mind not to wonder. Um, and the, well, what do we do? Well, what is the temptation to do? The temptation is to skip them. Is that the temptation? Has anybody been tempted to skip them? All right, your secret is safe with me, okay? This morning I want to change that. I want to change that so that we don't do that any longer. Um, You know, as we grow in Christ, one of the things that takes place in proportion to our growth in Christ, we grow fonder and fonder of the Word of God, don't we? In fact, if you find yourself in a season where it is a chore to read your Bible, you can be rest assured you have found yourself spiritually ill. You're going through a season of illness. There could be lots of reasons for it. It's a sermon for another day. But uh, as we grow in grace, as we grow in Christ, one thing that happens is our heart throbs more and more after God's Word, doesn't it? That's just one of the things that takes place. And furthermore, the Bible itself tells us, Paul tells us in the pastoral epistle, 2 Timothy 3.16, what does he say? He says that all Scripture is what? Theonoustos. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and for preaching, for training, for correction and righteousness that the man and woman of God may be equipped in every way. Right? Well, I would submit to you that that includes the genealogies. That includes the genealogies. Now, um, I think this might sound at the beginning as a tough task. How are, we, um, how are we going to make sense of these genealogies? I have three points this morning that I want to try to drive home. And I think the points are fairly simple. And the first point is that the genealogies that we find in Scripture are important to God. They're important to God. And secondly is that the genealogies that we find in Scripture play a role in God's revelation. In other words, what I want to show this morning is that these genealogies, these lists of names, are instructive. They teach us. They not only teach us about the history of salvation, but they actually have many, many lessons that actually take us to the very attributes of God Himself. And the last thing, and I think what you might be most surprised to learn, is that the genealogies actually teach us a lot about ourselves. How could that, how could that work? Well, don't change the channel. Uh, stay tuned, okay? 
when you're reading genealogy, sometimes your mind will kind of go away. Well, how about when we're studying genealogies? Uh, hang in there and try to, try to concentrate with me here, and I think you'll find it to be a very profitable exercise. Now, the first point that I want to make is that genealogies are important to God, and uh, I think the first, you know, as I was thinking about this point uh, throughout the week, is like, I, think the, I think the easiest way to begin to make the case that genealogies are important for God is just to point to the fact of how many of them we have. I mean, I, I didn't do the study. It'd be a tedious study, but I think it would be an interesting study is to compile the list. Go from Genesis to Revelation, compile a list. Uh, account for all the genealogies. And you could throw in the, the census lists. You could throw in all the names. You could throw in the names of, of the, the clans that inherit the promised land in Joshua. You could throw in First uh, Chronicles. One of you a while back asked me a question. It was after the service or before the service or something. You said, how does First Chronicles start? I think it was Donald that asked me that question. How does First Chronicles start? My mind went blank. You want to know why? It, probably why it went blank. It's because if you're familiar with First Chronicles, and your mind's probably blank right now too, don't feel bad about that. That's okay. But First Chronicles starts with a genealogy. There's like nine chapters of genealogies. Now your mind just doesn't, like, our minds do not hold on to that. Nine chapters of genealogy, of name after name after name after name. Here, here's, here's another one. Um, if you were given the assignment to write the New Testament, how would you begin? What would you write first? I'm going to guess you wouldn't begin with a genealogy. But the Holy Spirit began with a genealogy, didn't he? 17 verses. Matthew, a trinity of 14 generations. And Luke, Luke gives us a genealogy, doesn't he? And we have somewhat of one, you know, in the book of Revelation, you have the list, you know, 144,000, 12,000 from each, from each tribe. Curiously, Dan is missing from that list. That's a story for another day. But here we have all these lists of names, all these lists of names. These are important to God. Why are these important to God? Sometimes we look at this list of names. We can look at this list of names kind of coldly, and we can think, wait, now maybe the first audience was ex excited about this because they knew some of these guys, perhaps. But let's, let's, let's think about the, the genealogy that we come to this morning. There's this list of names. What is this list of names really reflective of? It's reflective of a list of people. In fact, we could fill this room if all of these people that are in our genealogy were to come into this room. We could fill this room, couldn't we? God savors genealogical lists. They are important to God because people are important to God. And I would even go a step further than that. 
I think it's, it's no, I don't think I'm on a limb at all if I were to say that God is actually excited about genealogies. Now, why, why would I say that? Well, because he's excited about people. He's excited about people. I mean, just think about, look at our genealogy. Look at verse 8. These are the names of the descendants of Israel. Now, Israel, of course, in this particular context, Israel is Jacob, right? Think about the amazing patience that the Lord has exercised over Jacob. Now, we've been studying. Some of us haven't been around for the whole study. Some of us have been around for part of the study. But we've been studying Genesis since Genesis 3, haven't we? And we've been studying Jacob. We studied the life of Jacob over the weeks. It's been a while. But is Jacob, what kind of character was Jacob? He's a trickster. He's a deceiver. You know, he, 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 he sets his brother up and he tricks his brother and deceives him for his birthright, doesn't he? Do you realize how grave of a sin that is? To tempt somebody like that? Now, Esau didn't have any... He didn't, he, you know, in that particular instance, he demonstrated that he had no respect for sacred things. He gives up his birthright for a pot of stew. But Jacob is the one that threw that out in front of him. He threw that out in front of him. That is a demonic thing to do. That is the work of the devil, isn't it? To throw temptations out in front of people in order to ruin people. Jacob played a role in the destruction of his brother. God exercised patience with him. Why? Because God's excited about him. And if, if you look at the rest, like Reuben, we studied Reuben. You know, briefly, Reuben has come up. Reuben, Reuben has an affair with one of, Jake, one of his father's wives, doesn't he? How about Simeon and Levi? They, they go into Shechem and they murder all of those men in Shechem, don't they? What about Judah? Well, you know, when Judah and his brothers, they all conspire, you know, to um, murder Joseph. They throw him in a pit and they're all talking about murdering him. It's Judah that says, hey, you know, he sees a caravan of Ishmaelites and, and the, the, the cash register in his mind starts ringing. And he says, hey, you know, what good is it if we're going to murder him? Let's not be murderers. Let's be human traffickers. Let's sell him off to the Ishmaelites. Then you have that disturbing chapter of Judah and Tamar. You have that. God exercised patience with these guys. And what about the rest of the list? You got Reuben, well, you got Reuben, Simeon, Levi, uh, Judah, you got Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, uh, Issachar, Zebulun, the ten brothers. They all conspired to sell Joseph off to slavery, and then they lie for 20 years to their father, lie right to his face, to their grieving father. But what have we been studying most recently? What we've been studying most recently is the great patience that God exercises in bringing these men to repentance. That's why I say God is excited about these men. He's excited about these names because they're reflective of people. And I might even add that God is excited about people because he has created people in his image, hasn't he? Every human being has been created in the image of God. You know, God, 
In Genesis 2, verse 7, he fashions the first body, the first human body out of the dust. And then what does he do? We're told that he breathes life into, into the corpse, into that corpse of dust. He breathes life into that corpse. We're told in the Hebrew, we're told that he breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. The Greek translation of that verse, interesting enough, says that he breathes into the face. He breathes into the face. It's the breath of life that animates the human race and gives us life. And not only has God created us, but he's created us in his image. So much that the psalmist will say, what is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you should care for him? But he has cared for us, hasn't he? You know, I was uh, at some point over the last three weeks, I was waiting for Tammy, me and Baxter, our little dog, are waiting for Tammy. We're outside of a Walmart, and you know, um, she was kind of I seen her coming out, so I wanted to back up, pull out of my spot to go get her and pick her up. And a, a guy comes out with a shopping cart full of stuff, and and there I'm sitting there with my backup lights on, running, car running, wanting to back up, and he pushes the shopping cart behind me, and he proceeds to begin loading his groceries into his car. And I mean, he's kind of going like this, you know. And he's looking at me, and he's putting stuff in the car. And I'm watching him in my rearview mirror, and I'm like, really? Ah, uh, okay. He took his time. He loaded his car up. He goes to the front. He's fooling around in the... In the front seat, he goes back, and finally, I bet it was 10 minutes before he finally moves the shopping cart out of the way. That man was created in the image of God. Believe me, I kept telling myself that. <laughs> Trying not to say other stuff. But so many times that I have said other stuff. God's excited about people. He's excited about people. And this is one of the reasons as we're praying about, as we're praying about this, this woman, you know, who's, who's talking about abortion, you know, talking about aborting her, her child. Do you realize what a crime it is to murder a human being? Whether they're in the womb or they're out of the womb, it is a crime. I'm cautious when I say that. I'll tell you why I'm cautious when I say that. I don't care about the political correctness of it. I could care less about that. I'm cautious when I say that because I've been, I've been on both sides of these aisle, of the aisle here. I've ministered to women who have gone through abortions years ago, and I realize the pain that they face. But on the other side of the aisle, it is indeed a crime. That's precisely why they face the pain, the pain and the guilt and the grief that they face later many of the times. It's not a small thing to take a human life because all of human life has been created in the image of God. And human life is something God is very excited about. And because genealogies are a list of human life, in fact, more so, a genealogy, a genealogical list is a list of family. It's a family list. And how does the Father reveal Himself to us? I just gave away the question. He reveals Himself the Father. A father, by definition, is a family man, isn't he? Genealogies are important to God. We could say so much more about that. Let's, let's move on. Genealogies play an important role in God's revelation. It's not always easy to see this. In fact, I will submit to you that it's hard work 
to see this, but quickly, um, I want to show you, and I've shown you in previous studies, but I want to show you again a little outline of Genesis. If you will turn with me to Genesis 2-4, you'll see the beginning of that outline. Commentators and interpreters, teachers of the Bible, they refer to this sometimes as a formula. If you look at Genesis 2 and verse 4, there you see these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. Some of you remember this, remember this conversation or remember this. The book of Genesis is divided, not equally, not in terms of, of prose. It's not an equal division, but there is a division in Genesis, and it surrounds this formula. Namely, these are the generations. We have the generations of the heavens and the earth. And if you turn to chapter 5, you'll see that this is the book of generations of Adam. You see that again, another division. And there's something I want you to see in this. If you look down to verse 4, you see that the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Now, what is the significance of this other sons and daughters? It's massive. It's massive. I'll tell you why it's so massive. Because what it tells us is that this is not an exhaustive list. What's so important about that? Well, what's important about that is if it's not an exhaustive list, then that means it's a selective list. And if it's a selective list, then it's trying to tell us something. You see that? In other words, the genealogy, this list of names, plays a role in God's revealing Himself to us. He's wanting to teach us things through this. Uh, the next one is in chapter 6, verse 9. If you want to memorize some genealogies, and I'm sure all of you are going to want to memorize genealogies after this sermon is over, right? You want to get busy and memorize a genealogy? I'm going to show you which one to memorize first. Um, it's right here in verse 9 and 10. These are the generations of Noah, chapter 6, verse 9. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Now, verse 10 is the genealogy. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, Japheth. We can handle that, right? I do recommend that you memorize that one because it's so important. It's so instructive. This is after the flood. The Lord has, the Lord has taken all the life. All human life has, been, has, been, has, has perished in the floodwaters, save Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, eight persons. Now, God will propagate and repopulate the entire world through Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now, let me just say one thing really quickly on the side, because I'm surprised no one is saying anything about this in the midst of all this, all this race stuff that's going on today. You know, the stuff we're all sick of hearing. Listen, we're all descendants of Noah. Now, I can understand why secularism doesn't want to say that, but I don't understand why the church doesn't want to say that. We're all sons and daughters of Noah. Guess what? We all have a common father. Now, maybe some of us are black. Maybe some of us are white. Maybe some of us are red. Maybe some of us are yellow. Maybe some of us are green. Maybe some of us are blue. We all have one common daddy. His name's Noah. There's one race. There's one. I could say a lot more about that. But Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It, try to memorize that one. And if you turn to chapter 10, you'll have another genealogy. And this, this is so significant. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. 
What is so significant about this? This has been called the table of nations. What do we have here? Well, we have the repopulation of the earth. Is this important to God? You better believe it's important to God because He's creating all these people in His image and He's repopulating the entire earth by way of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And then if you look at chapter 11, verse 3, or I'm sorry, chapter 11, verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. What is so significant about that? Well, Shem, Shem is the line through whom who will come. These kinds of questions, if you want to say Jesus, you usually get the answer right. Say Jesus. Well, what's so significant about that? What's significant about that is in Genesis 3.15, we're promised a son. You remember that discussion? A lot of this is review for everybody. If you're hearing this all for the first time and your head's spinning, that's okay. But there's a promise of a son. And what is this genealogy telling us? Well, the son is going to come through the line of Shem. And when you look at uh, verse 27 of chapter 11, these are the generations of Terah. What's so significant about Terah? Well, Abraham's going to come out of Terah, and he's going to be the father of the faithful, isn't he? And there, we've studied that for many weeks, uh, the covenant made with Abraham. And Abraham has two sons, and if you turn to Genesis 25, which will give you the kind of an idea of the length of material that concerns Abraham, We go all the way to chapter 25, and you'll see in verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. Ishmael. Now, who is Ishmael? Ishmael is the son that, you know, um, Abraham and Sarah are waiting and waiting and waiting, and they haven't had a a son, and many years go by, and finally Sarah says, listen, Abraham, take take my maidservant Hagar and and, and, and serve children through her. Maybe that's how the Lord's going to make His promise right. And they, they have Ishmael. And, of course, that, that was taking matters into their own hands. We studied that. You remember that. And uh, it, it turned out to be a disaster. But here we have, a, we have a genealogy of Ishmael. Now, what's the purpose of that genealogy of Ishmael? Well, it's to show God as a promise keeper. And, you know, when I left for vacation, I, I kind of had this idea that I was going to come back and preach a sermon. And, in fact, I told Tammy... Uh, I said, I already know where I'm going when we come back. So we're in really good shape. I'm going to preach a sermon entitled The Promise Keeper. You know, the Promise Keeper. God is a promise-keeping God. And uh, you look at the genealogies, and God had promised Abraham in Je- Genesis 17 that 12 princes would come out of Ishmael. And that's what this genealogy shows, is that 12 princes come out of Ishmael. And God is making good on His promise. You see, that teaches us about God, doesn't it? That He's a faithful God. That He's a that He's a He's a uh, that 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 He can be trusted. And if you look at verse nineteen, these are the generations of Isaac. And there we have Isaac. And then, if you turn to uh, Genesis thirty-six, now Isaac obviously has two two sons, uh, Esau and um, Jacob. And if you turn to Genesis 36, you notice that the entire chapter is given to the genealogy of Esau. Now we ask ourselves, now why is that? Because Esau kind of turns his back on God, doesn't he? Why would there be a whole chapter? Um, I, I think there's a lot of reasons, but I'll just share with you a, a, a couple of reasons. Uh, one is, look, look how merciful God is to bless Esau the way he has blessed Esau. This is amazing. This is amazing mercy. But secondly, notice that like 
So the, if, if, we, if we're going to play act here and look at this through worldly lenses, God has made a promise to Abraham that he would be as numerous as the stars, as numerous as the sun, the moon, and the stars. And how has that been working out? I mean, all these years have gone by, and what? How many sons? How many sons does he have? Well, Abraham has Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and Jacob is the promised son, right? And someone would say, you know, it looks to me like Esau is the one. It looks to me like it's not really prudent to follow after Jacob. I mean, Jacob's got 12 sons and one daughter. That's not bad, but look at Esau. Look at Esau. And we're starting to get set up in Genesis 36 for Exodus, actually. And what do we learn about God in this? This is really important. What we learn about God is this. He makes His promises, like Jesus. He promises He will return. It's been many centuries. Jesus hasn't returned. Do we need to be worried about that? No, because God has made promises in the past, and He's taken a long time in order to bring those uh, to fruition. Here we see that right here. But if you turn to our, 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 our Scripture text this morning, what do we see happening? Now there are 70. They're going down into Egypt. And there's a promise being made here in verse 3. Genesis 46, verse 3, God says, I am God, the father, the God of your father. He's speaking to Jacob. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. And we're being set up for Exodus. If you look at Exodus 1, I want you to see how this is all put together. If you look at Exodus 1, notice these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, and then there's a list of names. It's an abbreviated genealogy that we have in Genesis 46. And what is that telling us? If we can imagine our Bibles without versification, without chapter identification, and without book names, and just let Genesis run right into Exodus, we'll see the continuity there. And what is God up to when... They get down to Egypt, and the insight of 430 years, God is going to cause Israel to multiply. And He's going to make good on this promise, and the multiplication is going to be astounding. Some scholars estimate that there are 2 million people, that Israel becomes a nation of 2 million people while they're in Egypt. We learn this from the genealogies. Uh, so many more things could be said. I want to, if you'll, if, you'll, if you'll stick with me a little bit, I want to share something. And this is for our children. This is for Shine. This is for you. Uh, later, it'd be, you know, uh, Isaac and Adeline and all the, the, the children in the back. They need to know this. When you go off and you go into the academy, you go off and if you go to college or you go to university, you may encounter some professors that are very cynical of the Scriptures. In fact, you may encounter some professors that will say something like this, you can't trust the Bible. Now, I can tell you as a public speaker, you can, I could learn who the believers are and who the seekers are really quick just by looking at all of you and saying, you can't trust the Bible. Now, whoever's a believer and whoever's a seeker, Whatever they're doing, they're going to stop doing it, and they're going to look. 
And now I'm going to kind of know. And now I can look you in the eyes and I can say, well, you don't trust the Bible, do you? How foolish of a thing it would be to trust the Bible. It's full of error. Haven't you ever been taught that? Fact, well, let me show you one thing. Genesis 46, verse 27. Look at verse 27 with me. And I'm play acting here in terms of the professor. Imagine I'm your professor. You go to Genesis 46, verse 27, and you look. Look, all of the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Now, if you turn to Acts chapter 7 and verse 14, you don't have to. You can take my word for it. If you turn to Acts 17, verse 14, you're going to read that all the persons that come in to Egypt were 75. See, you can't trust your Bible. Now, some of you are laughing because you know, you know where I'm going. And, and we could add to that. We could add some other scenarios to that. We could add some other scenarios. And if we string those scenarios all together, and you've never heard this before, your faith is going to get rattled. You're going to get rattled. You're going to be like, what? Mom, Dad, you're going to be calling your mom and dad up, and you're going to say, why didn't you teach me? Why didn't you show me that there's errors in the Bible? And if your mom and dad don't know, they're not going to know what to say. But we need to know what to say. It looks like there's an error there, doesn't it? There's been a lot of ink spilled over that, and there's a lot of proposals. And I'm going to give you one scenario that could be the proposal. I don't know if it is the proposal, but this is one scenario. If you look at the text, if you look at verse 15, there you see Leah. Okay, Leah's uh, children, the children that Jacob has through Leah is 33. If you look at verse 18, there the, ch the, the children that that, the, uh, that uh, Zilpah, Leah's um, maidservant, has, are 16. Then you go on down to uh, Rachel in verse 22. You see there are 14. You go down to verse 25. You'll see there are seven. If you add those numbers up, they come to 70. Okay? That's what the text says. That's what verse 27 tells us. There are 70. Now, if you back up to verse 26, you'll see that it says there were 66 persons. All of the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons and wives, were 66 persons in all. Well, is it 66 or is it 70? Okay, here's one scenario. Okay, Ur and Onan don't come down to Egypt because they die in Canaan. You can remember that story. All right? And Ephraim and Manasseh, Joseph's sons, are already in Egypt. But if we count them, we count all of them, we get 70. If we take them out, we get 66. That's one possibility. Now, what about Stephen in Acts 7, 14, saying that there's 75? This is easy. Stephen is quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and the Greek translation of the Old Testament includes Joseph's grandsons. In fact, it says in the Greek, it says there are nine souls. If you take nine souls and you add nine to 66, what do you have? 75. Now, I'm not loading you up here so you can blast your instructors, okay? I think the righteous thing to do would be just to listen to that and say, boy, I just feel bad for you and I'm going to pray for you. And look around the room and see if you can see anybody else who's rattled. And if you can see anybody else who's rattled, go and comfort them with the truth. Let's say, listen, don't pay no mind to him. Let's all get together and let's pray for him. Don't, I mean, he's lost his way. 
um, here's a proposed, this UFC, there's proposals. This, this can be worked out. So don't listen to it. Does that make sense? Now, quickly, let me get to the last, the last one. I told, my, I told Tammy, uh, I told her Friday night, I said, I got a sermon. Um, in fact, I got three sermons. Believe it or not, I have three sermons on this genealogy. And I've really kind of already given you two of them. Um, I was telling Tammy that, um, I said, I have a sermon for Sunday, but it's going to be really boring until we get to the third point. And I'm watching you, and I'm amazed that you're like hanging through all this as well as you're hanging through all this. Um, I, I told her, I said, it's going to be boring. I'm not trying to make it boring, but it, I think it's going to be boring, but I think it's going to be boring for this reason. And this is my third point. What is the third point? Well, I've said that, listen, God is excited about genealogies, right? Why? Because he is excited about people. Genealogies are reflective of names. And that they have much to teach us. They have much to say to us about, about God. But the third point that I want to make is that our attitude towards the genealogies may serve to show us something about ourselves spiritually. In other words, our attitude toward the genealogies may teach us a lot about our current spiritual condition. Now how? God is excited about genealogies. Why? Because God is excited about people. Could our indifference to genealogies be reflective? of indifference toward people? Especially people we don't know. I don't know these guys. I can't even pronounce their names. And believe me, when I read those names, I, I know I'm, I'm sure I'm botching them up. Nobody really knows how to pronounce this stuff. Can I let you in on that secret? Nobody really knows. But to read this list of names and our minds just to go off shows indifference towards a list of people. Could this indifference to the genealogies be reflective of indifference toward people? And if that is the case, how out of step is that with the gospel? How out of step is that with Christ? I mean, while we're, and, and, and listen, I mean, while we're fussing about how to get uh, justification by faith right, how we're fussing over getting our our ecclesiology right, our churchology, if you will, getting church right, getting worship right, getting soteriology right, getting, getting salvation, getting all these fancy words and fancy names and getting all this theology right. And you know, you know me well enough to know that I'm all excited about all that and I want to get all that right. But how about if we're in this room, we're getting all this stuff right and we're indifferent towards people we don't know. How out of step with the gospel, does that make us? How sickly does that reveal us to be? 
The Apostle Paul, if I might use his words, say that if we don't have love, even though if we speak in the tongues of men and angels, we're what? A noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. How do we change this? I, I'm, you know, how do we change this? How do we grow in Christ-like love? How do we conquer indifference? I'll give you four things. I would suggest you write these down. The first is that Christ loved us while we were so unlovable and unlovely. Listen, that, that, that man that, that delayed me 10 minutes in the, in the Walmart parking lot, the discourtesy that he extended to me, that's nothing. Isn't it? In comparison to the sin that I have committed against our Lord. You're staring at a really unlovely man. I am a very unlovely and unlovable character. If God were to extract His grace from me in two seconds, I will be a demonic man. And it is to this demonic man that the Lord Jesus came to me in love. That's the game changer. Has he come to you in love? Irregardless of your past, we all have a past. Has he come to you in love? And has he exercised the patience with you? I would submit that he's exercising the same patience with us, the exercise with Jacob. We learn that out of the genealogy. Let's try reading this genealogy again. Let's try it this way. Let's go about it this way. These are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. The descendants of Israel. This is our family. They came into Egypt. Jacob. Jacob. Well, his firstborn is Reuben. What was Reuben like? We know so little about him. What was he like? Who was his family? Well, here's his family. Reuben, oh, I'll tell you who my family is. My, here's my sons. I have a son named Hanuk. I have another son named Palu. I have another son named Hezron. I have another son named Carmi. This is Carmi. This is the youngest, Carmi. I don't know about the spiritual condition of every one of these individuals, but I think I can say that we're going to meet them in eternity. And these are people that we're going to be with for all eternity in Christ. That makes them our brothers and sisters in the Lord, doesn't it? Really unlovely people until the Lord went after them and shared His grace upon them. Kind of a lot like us, right? Bunch of unlovely bunch. You might say, well, talk for yourself, Rick. Well, I will. I have been. Secondly, we give ourselves to wholly love the Lord and to love Him for His beauty, His excellence, His glory, and His majesty. Notice what I say there. I get this from Jonathan Edwards. We're not loving the Lord because He has given us a wonderful station in life. We're not loving the Lord because He has given us a husband or a wife or He's given us children or He's given us anything. We're loving the Lord because He is beautiful. We're loving the Lord because He is glorious. We're loving the Lord because He is excellent. We're loving the Lord because He is majestic. Give yourself to that love. Give yourself wholly to that love of God. And reflect, thirdly, reflect often on the great patience that the Lord has extended to us and to all people. 
And lastly, I'm going to leave you with this. You'll be happy to know that I'm almost done. Um, reflect on the motives of Christ. What do I mean by the motives of Christ? This will flesh it out for you. This is a little book entitled The Valley of Vision. Some of you are familiar with it. It's a book of prayers uh, from pastors from you know hundreds of years ago. And in one of them, it's entitled Love. And it, he starts out, he says, Lord Jesus, he says, give me to love thee, to embrace thee, though I once took lust and sin in my arms. Thou didst love me before I loved thee. What is he saying? He's saying that you loved me, Lord, before I loved you. And you loved me when I was embracing lust and sin. You loved me when I was so unlovable. Then he goes on to say, Thou dost love me as a son and weep over me as over Jerusalem. Do you believe God does that for you? That he loves you as a son or a daughter? And that he would even weep over you as Jesus weeps over the, over the unbelief of Jerusalem as he's descending down the Mount of Olives? Here's the motives I'm talking about. Love brought thee from heaven to earth. Why did he come? Because of love. Love brought thee from the earth to the cross. Love brought thee from the cross to the grave. Love caused thee to be weary, hungry, tempted, scorned, scourged, buffeted, spat upon, crucified, and pierced. Love led thee to bow thy head in death. This love is not intermittent, meaning it doesn't work some of the time and doesn't work other the time. This love is not intermittent. It's not cold. It's not changeable. And it does not cease or abate for all my enmity. He goes on and says other things. I commend it to you. These are the motives behind the Lord. And it's a motive of love to come and fetch us. This is the game changer. This is a deadly blow to indifference in our hearts. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for giving to us such patience through such a really a, a long message and a message that uh, really takes a lot of energy to hang on to. Father, some of us who are less familiar with all of this are probably happy this is over. Father, I think all of us, and I can say, is we, we look to you, O oh Father, and we just pray that you will teach us through these things, Father. We look to you, O oh Father, and we, we, we see, and hopefully, Father, I, I pray that we see that, Lord, there's a new way to look at all these genealogies and lists of names. O oh Father, these names are important to you because people are important to you, and you teach us through these names. And these names do reveal, us th reveal to us things. Perhaps 
This morning, Father, there is a number of us, and we're looking at this and we're thinking, this has really revealed a cold heart. It has really revealed a massive amount of indifference. Oh, Father, if that's the case, then, Lord, you, as a surgeon, you have, you, you have, you have uh, taken your scalpel and you've made an incision in our hearts. And, oh, Father, as you perform your surgery on us, we pray, Father, and we know that, Father, you will fix the place. You will sew it back up and you will make it right. So, oh, Father, I pray that, Lord, you will heal us of this indifference. And I really believe, Father, it is here where uh, we, can, we really stand to be truly transformed as an agent of change in this valley as we get this one. Oh, Father, help us, oh, oh Lord, to overcome indifference and coldness towards people. Fill our hearts, O oh Father, with your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.